Welcome to A Handful of Hope, where we bring you heart-to-heart conversations with heart-centered people. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another edition of A Handful of Hope. I'm so happy and grateful to have Sorsha McAloon with us here today, who is a retired police officer who now specializes in helping women break free from the pain of their childhood abuse, trauma, so they can be who they were born to be and live life on their terms unapologetically. Sorsha, welcome and thank you so very much for being here with us today. Hey, how are you? It's good to be here. Thank you. Yeah, I feel like we should have recorded the first 15 minutes of our conversation. <laughs> we had some we had some good material going there. <laughs> yeah, when you get into the conversation and it just flows, yeah, it all comes out. <laughs> yeah, so I, I'm, I'm really excited to dive into this. I've, I've enjoyed the conversations I've been able to have with you thus far. And I think you have such an empowering perspective, and not just for women, but for men as well. And I think it's your voice is such a refreshing voice in times of uncertainty and trepidation that we're in right now. So I want to first talk, if we will, how does one make the transition from police officer to your field now? Because it seems like a, a police officer, at least I was just talking with someone the other day about this, you know, kind of one of the lures of law enforcement is you go in and it's a, a position you can stay in for a career and then you might get a pension or retirement and all those types of things with it. So what, what causes that transition for you? Ooh. It was a hard one. I'm not, you know, I'm not going to lie and pretend that it was this nice, soft transition. Um, and perfectly honest, it probably, um, it was probably more a forced one in that I didn't see it coming. I didn't plan it. Um, and I was sailing along beautifully in my career. I had a great career and I loved it. Oh my God, did I love it. Um, and then my past caught up with me and bit me in the ass without me even seeing it just completely blindsided me. Um, and, and took me out of my career for a year where I was really in a very dark place in bed, really struggling to function with the most simplest of tasks like brushing my teeth. I was in a really hard place with coming to terms with my past. I managed to get onto an even keel of just functioning and back to work. But the universe has a really funny way of redirecting you when you don't listen to the first lesson and you don't listen to the second lesson. And then it's like, oh, we've got to get really hard with her and give her an even tougher lesson. <laughs> and I got injured, I got injured and I had never been injured. Um, and I was injured to the point I needed surgery. Um, and a few things happened at once in work as well. And, and my aunt, you know, who's, who's quite aware, she said, how hard does your message have to be? How bad does it have to get before you'll actually do something about this? Mm -hmm. And that was it. After two years of really tough lessons, really hard knocks, PTSD, flashbacks, and in, really and truly in a black hole, my injury at work forced me to look at things seriously. Um, and it all sort of merged together, the coming to terms with my past, starting my healing, getting injured, not being able to go back to being a frontline officer. I mean, all of these things just happened at once. They weren't gently handed to me, you know, here's a little bit and here's a little bit. It was like full 
force, eye of the storm, here's your shift storm and we're going to give it to you all at once. And you're either going to sink or you're going to swim. And really that was it. And then um, the more I was healing, the more I was recovering, um, I was sort of told that this is the work you'll do. And I can tell you that this is not the work I wanted to do. I thought, what? Help women? Who wants to do this? Work with abuse and talk about trauma? No, I want to get back to my career. But I didn't get back to my career. Um, I was ended up being medically retired after my injury. and. I was redirected and I eventually listened. I eventually got the message. So it was not a it was not a soft, gentle transition at all, but a very tough one. What do you think is the source of resistance for people in receiving messages? Because what you just said about how hard does the lesson have to be, or your aunt said rather, mm-hmm. that resonates mm-hmm. so much with me. Mm-hmm. And I think it probably resonates with quite a few of us. I think most of us who are honest will say that it's taken more than 18 times for, for us to finally like allow it to get in. And uh, so what do you think that source of resistance is for folks with receiving it's, That's a brilliant, brilliant question. And it's really interesting because there's a few things going on there. We as humans like what is familiar. That's how the mind works. It likes what is familiar and it will resist what is unfamiliar. So that is why when you, you know, people talk about, oh, it'll take 21 days or so to change a habit because you have to make it familiar because our mind really and truly will resist. That's why you resist change so much because it's uncertain and it's unfamiliar and people mistake it and call it hard, but it's not hard. It's it's unfamiliar. And the other way that our brain likes to operate is that it likes to move towards pleasure and, a, and away from pain. So for a lot of people, they associate change with fear, fear of the unknown. What if I fail? What if it doesn't work? What if it's always going to be like this? And all of these stories. So then they will they will associate that as a painful experience. So they will stay in a very comfortable, familiar situation. That is pleasurable, as in it's familiar, and they will resist the change and the transition and the move. And then we stay stuck, even though that's familiar and maybe not the best thing for us, but it's comfortable and it's familiar. So it's OK. You said you said my healing began or I began my healing journey. And I can imagine like going into that. Well, actually, let me back this up and ask this first. Were you. Was that your thought process at the time, meaning at the time you were thinking, okay, I need to be in healing, or were you thinking, or was that somebody saying, hey, you really need to start healing, or is that what you call it now, kind of what was your thought process as you dove into that? This is brilliant. Um, No, it was definitely not my thought process at the time. It's my, it's what I call it now. At the time, it was the most excruciating, painful, terrifying experience of my life. I felt completely on my own, misunderstood. People who thought they were being helpful were not being helpful when they would give me books on forgiveness and books Mm. on getting over it. And they would actually say to me, you've got to build a bridge and get over it. Let it go. It's like, 
that's really the most useless piece of, of guidance. That's not helpful when you're suffering and you're in pain. So it was like, it, for me, it was like someone telling me that I had to climb Everest in a day without an oxygen tank, without a Sherpa, with concrete boots on. Hmm. That is how tough my days felt. And it was scary as hell because I used to think, what if this is it? What if this is as good as it gets? This is the best your life's ever going to be. And this is it. And I had no idea. First of all, I had no idea I had trauma. I didn't even realize that I had trauma to deal with. I was this feisty, strong, powerful policewoman. I had the house. I had the car. I had the holidays. I, it looked really good on the outside. But inside, I was unfulfilled. I was, mm. I had poor quality relationships, but I didn't know that. To me, it was just normal. So you don't even recognize that you're in your own shit. You don't even recognize it's falling apart. You don't even recognize your life's not working because you have settled for the crumbs. You've thought, well, this is it. It's normal. This is as good as it's going to get. And I didn't even know where to begin. You listen to the experts saying, oh, go to psychotherapy, go to, you know, talk therapy, go to counseling, try this medication, try CBT, try Reiki. Did you try yoga? Just this bombardment of stuff that are, for me, were coping strategies. They were band-aids, but they were not fixing the issue. They weren't even touching on it. Recognizing you're in your own shit. I think that is a powerful statement. And it's something that, you know, people we, we have, we're so adaptable. And to our detriment, one of the things that we can become adaptable to is, is being comfortably uncomfortable, you know, finding, finding home in our own shit. How do was one begin to recognize that? How do we begin to become aware of, or you know, have that light switch turned on, or maybe the the proverbial clothespin pulled off our nose and start sniffing what we're sitting in? What well, exactly? I always say it's only when you can. It's only when you can no longer stand the smell of your own shit when you get up and move. So for me, it was like I became so bored with my story. I was like, this, this cannot be my reason for being on this earth. I am so bored listening to myself. So I can't imagine what other people feel because I was really bored listening to myself. But also that glimpse of what if this, what if this isn't it? What if this is not as good as it gets? What if this isn't normal? What if there is something bigger and better for me, even if I can't see it right now? But it was a feeling. I just thought I can't go through life like an existence. I, I can't go through life just existing. So there has to be that little fire. You have to find that even a little flame in you that says you're worth fighting for, that, that what if my life can be different? 
what if I have settled, believed my current reality is as good as it can be, and I and we have this as humans, which is astounding. We have this notion that we can't change things, that it's external things that can change our lives, but that we are not that powerful. And that's to me, that's the biggest lie that we are being told. And I remember um, the moment that I was actually, it was the police doctor I had an appointment with and I was really rock bottom. And he was asking me questions and he asked me, was I going to hurt myself? And I remember saying to him, everything has been taken off me. My career slipping through my fingers. My health is slipping through my fingers. My relationships have been demolished. I'll be damned if he's going to take the last breath from my body. Mm. That was the fire in my belly. That's all I needed to think, maybe source, you can do this. Maybe there is an answer beyond CBT and talking about it and rehashing it. There is something else. There has to be something else. And it's your job to go and find it. Find what works for you. When you said... I, I had become so bored with my own story. Were you, and I'm really curious about this, were you still, because I imagine that there's always going to be new people that would entertain it and engage in it, right? And would validate it. And, and, and so for you to actually get to the point of boredom with that, because I can, you know, from my understanding and observation of people, much of what fuels us often staying stuck where we are is, is the validation we get from other people when we share that story of why we are where we are. And it's, you know, great a convenience to us is that we live in a world where there's 8 billion sets of ears. That gives us a lot of options to help fuel and validate the story, especially when we start to surround ourselves with people who their sense of worth and identity gets formed and reinforced by being the validator or by hearing a story from someone else who seems to be you know, struggling or suffering, and it kind of helps them think, well, maybe my life's not quite so bad, or, you know, whatever it is, or they have some gossip they can go and take to someone else about. Yeah. So for you to actually get to the place where you were bored with it, you know, how, how did you start to become aware of that? How was there a feeling? Was there a shift inside of you? Because I think this is really important. I imagine that there's people who are listening and watching right now who are worn out and exhausted over the story they've been telling, but it's so familiar to them that they may not even will be aware, again, you know, that they're in their shit. They may not even be aware that they're exhausted or they're bored with their story. So what was that awareness like for you? The toxicity of the drama, he said, she said, the the breakdown of relationships and the realization I am missing out on life by rehashing and living in the pain and the past. Of, and I didn't want that to be a feature in my future. And I knew I started to understand the power of energy. I started to understand that what you focus on 
multiplies and grows and you you propel yourself towards it you magnify it and attract even more and more and more of it and I was in such pain such destruction that I knew it wasn't going to end well if I kept going and going and going and feeding off anybody listening to me and I realized I needed to have more self-worth. I needed to have more value for myself to realize I don't need anybody's validation and external. I don't even need anybody to believe me. I don't need anyone to believe me. I know the truth. That's all that matters. And it just comes back to me realizing this, this cannot be my story. This is not my identity. It's not who I want to create anymore it's not the story I want to hold on to anymore I want to create something new something more alive Hmm. so I had to become very self-aware I had to become like the observer of my own behavior of how I was behaving and cultivating the victimhood mentality and keeping that alive and the poor me and you don't attract anything good from that energy and that place and honestly I really did have this belief Sorcerer, you've been put here for something bigger this experience is for something bigger than your you suffering but it requires an aware a self-awareness of I'm the common denominator in my life therefore every single thing that has happened in my life I am the common denominator I am the one that's creating it it is not out there it is not the person who abused me it's not the trauma I experienced growing up in Northern Ireland it's not my parents it's not my you know whoever it's not what happened to me it is my perception it's what I'm making it mean and it is the fuel that I'm giving it that's keeping the fire alive and I wanted a different story I, I thought this this is not this isn't me so I think you have such a unique perspective to speak to this because of your journey of going through abuse growing up in Northern Ireland at a time when it, it was not necessarily the top of most people's travel lists because of all that was uh, transpiring there. You talked about the victim mentality. I wonder if you could speak to that for a moment, because especially when we say growing up, I, I think that the tendencies in, in the world now, you know, kind of popular opinion, if you will, would be to say, well, you were a victim of circumstance. You know, how could you help it? You couldn't help where you're born. You couldn't help what happened. You couldn't help the people you're around yourself with. And, and while it might be, that might be some truth to that, we can acknowledge that. I think the challenge with it, at least from my perspective, is, is when we start a narrative down of that, that is fueled by a sense of, or it could be fueled by a sense of empower, empowerlessness, that you're helpless, you had nothing to do, and therefore there's, you may still have nothing to do. And, I, and that's my biggest issue with it often today is it's like, you know, you couldn't help what happened, you were powerless to do anything about it. And the 
only way you can have power now is if you get really upset and angry about it versus actually proactively doing something about it or, or working through it or, or like you did beginning a healing quest. So I wonder if you could speak for a few minutes on the victim mentality. You know, how did you, what, what do you define victim mentality as? So for people who might find themselves in that space so they can identify it for themselves. And then how did you begin to overcome that? And how do you, where there was once victim mentality, what have you replaced that label with now? Great. So, um, so like, as you, you already know, I'm not big one for labels. I don't use labels with my clients. I think labels are for jars, but I definitely identify um, states of being that we can be in, like victimhood. And for me, victimhood is when you do feel powerless, when you do feel helpless to change your circumstances, and um, when you think that it is people doing things to you. My ex is doing this to me and he's making my life hell and my dad's doing this and the, the government's doing this. And we, we have this, that it's external, right? So it's like, um, it, that's Newtonian physics, right? Where it is external circumstances are directly impacting me and my life. And a victim, for me, in my mind, just from my own personal experience, so not any judgment on where anybody is right now on their journey, but um, it's somebody else's job to make me feel better. It's somebody else's job to fix me. It's my mom's job to understand me and take sides. It's um, my family's job to say he was wrong. Yes, that happened to you. And that's awful that that happened to you. So I was handing over my own power to somebody else to fix me I wasn't broken but to make me feel better so that's the first thing a victim will hand over their power without necessarily knowing that they're doing that because that's all they've known it's all they've known I mean the definition of trauma is when you are when an experience renders you feeling powerless and helpless and a threat to your survival and you can't do anything about that situation that can be a very that can be as simple as a child being put into a car seat against their will. They're rendered powerless, helpless, and they might think there's a threat to their survival. They don't know that, but it can be something as simple as that. It doesn't have to be this big trauma. So as an adult, we are not children. We are not powerless children. We are not, we can get ourselves out of a dark room. We can get ourselves, we can feed ourselves. So for me, the switch was, ah, it is 100% my responsibility. It is not my fault. It is not, I am not to blame for what happened to me, but it is absolutely 100% my responsibility to do something about it, to mm. either stay in the pain of it and the shit of it, or to actually heal it, change it, release it, let it go and move on. And now to be in my complete sovereignty, of my universe, of my kingdom, of my world, of the life I'm creating, that is 100% on me because nobody can feel for me, think for me, choose for me, accept me. Hmm. Even if you were, you know, if you think of Mandela, Mandela or any of those people who are in captivity, but the one thing that cannot be taken from you is you, how you choose to think and how you choose to feel. And it is your choice and your feelings that will 
will attract your world, will create your world. And that's quantum physics. That's that's versus Newtonian physics, where Newtonian physics is all about, oh, it's the external, and I have, I have no control. I have no power over the external, what somebody does or says to me. And when you make the quantum leap, it's like, I, it comes from me. I am a sovereign being in my universe, creating my world, my way, life on my terms. Hmm. And I'm 100% responsible for that. But a lot of people who are in the victim stage, and that is okay, that's part of their journey. I was there too. They are, and I was there, I was like, but I, but I, I didn't, it's not my fault. I didn't do this to me. I didn't do, I didn't choose that at eight years of age, or I didn't choose that at two years of age. Well, guess what? Your abuser is not going to come and knock on your door and go, you know what? I want to make things right. I want to, I'll pay for your therapy. I want to make it okay. They're not going to do that. 100% responsibility and ownership over your, your life and if you hand that power over to somebody else then you are handing your power over willingly it is a choice you may not be aware of it but it's a choice i i love that explanation and as you were sharing it reminded me of something i read not that long ago where they were talking about trauma response in animals and they said the one thing that separates humans from the rest of the animals that walk the earth is that when most other animal species encounter trauma, they physically shake it off. They don't hold on to it, they shake it off. They talk about that in animals, there's, there's fight or flight, which we all know well, and then there's freeze. And animals will often, when it's a predator prey scenario, will default to freezing. If they can't, they feel realize they can't flee and they can't fight, they'll freeze because it's a way to almost fake death. And the hope is, is that they can do it. The predator thinks they're, they're dead. They walk away for a moment and they can get up and run away. And then they shake off the trauma. It's why when we watch National Geographic or something like that, you see the gazelle running from the lion. The gazelle's terrified. It gets away. The lion goes off in a separate way. And the gazelle, two seconds later, is right back to relaxing eating again because it kind of physically shakes it off. Whereas humans, when we go through trauma, we, we won't shake it off. We often hold on to it. And and I think this is a societal thing too, because then we have we have so much of our dialogues and narratives built around the holding onto it. Sorsha, what happened? You know, tell me about it. Boy, how did that make you feel? Whoa, what happened? You know, and it's and it's almost like a hardwired conditioned response. I could even I could even hear myself earlier on when you're saying I got injured while at work. And my and there's a part of my mind that goes, wants to know, well, what happened? How that make you feel? How are you doing now? And we we come across as compassionate, considerate, which there's a part of that is, yeah. but what we don't realize is to the other person who has gone through that, that can start to become um, almost a way that we medicate meeting our needs. Yes. Mm-hmm. Right. You think about the person who might be a little socially uncomfortable or awkward, and all of a sudden now they have somebody expressing an interest in them. Well, they didn't really talk to me before, but now that I've been hurt and I've gone through this thing, they, they're showing the care. I remember going through a, a breakup one time and, you know, I didn't, I wasn't aware I was doing this at the time, but gosh, I had a couple of people who I would just commiserate and talk to over and over and over again about it. And they were always there to talk about it. And they were getting their needs met because they had a sense of significance and they were able to serve and support. And 
be a good friend. And for me, like there was this bond connection. I didn't want to let it go. I didn't want to get better because I didn't want to have to face the alone in my own shit. So as long as I still have them to keep talking, you know, and the conversations would never be as long if I was having an okay day. Uh, and it is, it's a really curious thing that the rest of animal species have learned the value of shaking off and letting go. Mm-hmm. And we've done almost the opposite where we grab a hold and hold on and kind of merge it into our identity. And we build narratives around that culturally mm-hmm. to reinforce that piece. It's, it is interesting. There's, so there's a few things. Um, Trauma gets trapped in the body. People think trauma is in the mind because you can remember it and you can think about it, but it actually gets trapped in the body, physically in the body. And it, one of the things that I deal with when I help my clients is shock and disbelief because they, they could walk around for 30 years with shock locked in their body and they don't even realize. Human beings, animals in captivity, and domesticated animals, they can all hold shock and trauma in their body. So domesticated and captivated animals won't shake it off like animals in the wild. They will, so you'll see, you know, if you we have a wee rescue dog and she's been with us six years and she's come on leaps and bounds, but she still has that in her body where her body will just tighten Mm. up and she'll go into fear. So that's a domesticated animal that, can, hasn't been able to release and, and let go of and do that shaking. Human beings are also the only animals in the animal kingdom that can trigger the fight or flight response through memory or thought alone. So animals in the wild can't do that because a gazelle would never go back to the water and hole if it started to remember, oh, I did this yesterday at the same time and that lion popped out. So, you know what, I better not do it at this time today. Whereas, whereas humans can trigger that fight, flight, or freeze response. Three times in my healing, I went through the shaking process. Uncontrollable shaking that I had absolutely no control over my body or my limbs. And that was just the release of the shock and trauma out of my body that I didn't even know I had. I didn't know anything about it. And I didn't know what was happening when it, when it first started. The third time that it happened, I understood what, what was happening. A lot of people will call it a reaction or, you know, where, where the body reacts in such a violent way, but it's not really. It, when you hold a safe place for a client to do that and you know that you can get them through it, it's very safe, very healthy. I'm very exhausted, but it's, I've gone through it three times and it is the most exhilarating feeling after a while when you realize, holy shit, I didn't realize I was so heavy and tight and scared and fearful and locked in fight or flight. Mm. That is why you have people going around now with adrenal fatigue um, chronic fatigue, burnout, and they don't realize that they've been living in a chronic state of fight or flight. And we are not designed to live in a chronic state of fight or flight. We're not designed to live that way. It's supposed to be a, it's supposed to be an immediate reaction. You get to move on. Levels, you know, return to equilibrium and balance and harmony, but that's not the case. Because we are living with the memory, the thoughts, the flashbacks, and then the sensation in the body. 
and then we make them, we re, re experience them as if they're happening right now. Well, with the subconscious mind, what happens is that when you have a thought, well, in the sub, with the subconscious mind, it cannot tell the difference between what is real, imagined, mm. the future, the past, or a lie. So it takes it for true. So your initial trauma isn't the issue. The issue is that you live it hundreds and thousands of times a day as a thought and your body and your mind thinks it's reality. Mm. It thinks it's the experience again and again and again. And it might've happened 32 years ago, but to your mind it's happening now. It's the experience now. The thought is the experience. And that's, what it, that's where it has to really change. Kind of the thought is the experience. The thought is the experience. That's what your mind thinks. The thought is the experience. They don't, it doesn't know that it's just a thought. But your body will respond in that primal instinct of fight or flight. So I feel like we've begun to barely scratch the surface, but we're coming up on time. Before I ask my final question, where can people find and connect with you online? Oh, well, I believe I'm the only source of Macaloon on the internet, so <laughs> it's not hard to find out everything about me when you type my name in there. <laughs> um, so, yeah, so, I mean, they type my name and then there I am, but they can email me at, um, it's info at sourcemacaloon.com. They can find me on Facebook under my name, um, or if they really want to go to my direct calendar to actually speak with me, it is life free from abuse.com forward slash apply but type my name into google and there everything comes up <laughs> Sorsha, this has been such a fascinating conversation and i would be remiss if i didn't ask you at least one question that might you know kind of shake things up a little bit so i'll end with this in the united states now the i think one of the the go-to sources in the media is 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 a story that makes police officers look like bad guys it's it's a very common state and, and it's not to say that it's not important to bring awareness to improper policing and looking for opportunities to go the challenge with it is is oftentimes these narratives are very one-sided and rarely do we ever hear stories about police officers doing good the fallout, of course, of this is, is that we have everyday citizens now feeling unsafe and questioning their officers, or in some cases, when an officer has something bad happen to them or perhaps loses their life, citizens celebrate it as a righteous act and justice is served in some way, shape, or form. And now, be it, these are extreme examples. I don't want to begin to even imagine that that's painting the picture of a whole. But it has been something that's evolved as a narrative these past several years. I'm curious to see how in Ireland has the public perception, has the public perception changed at all and how the public views police officers? And as a former police officer yourself, how do you feel about some of the ways law enforcement is portrayed in the media today? A nice, easy, light question to leave you with. Great, great. Um... So I just want to be really clear for your listeners as well that I was a police officer in Northern Ireland, which has a very, very different police service to Ireland. In Northern Ireland, all of us 
are armed police officers. And I grew up in a, an era when um, the police were predominantly 90 odd percent Protestant from the Protestant background community. So growing up in Northern Ireland, Catholics most certainly feared police, police brutality. You'd have heard all of that oppression and everything. And then it changed from the RUC into the PSNI with the intention of making it a police force for everyone or a police service for everyone. So that it would be Catholic, Protestant, male, female. When I joined, my father's words to me were, I can't help but tell you how disappointed I am in you because we'd have been from a Catholic background. And I said, how is anything supposed to change if people with a broad mind who are not either or, you know, in, in how they've been growing up to be, you know, believe in the police service, if, if we don't join and change things. And in Northern Ireland, we say, the Protestants don't like us and the Catholics don't like us. Nobody likes the police until they need you, until they really need you. And they're in dire straits and they need you to their house. They need you at a scene. They've, you know, something has happened. Unfortunately, you are going to get rogue police officers in any police force who abuse their power, who have anger issues who you know, do things that is not what a police service is supposed to be. They are acting on their own. Unfortunately, then everybody tars everybody with the same brush. It's like, you know, oh, you're all the same. Um, and what I would say in any situation that I have been in, you have seconds to make decisions seconds to make decisions that have consequences but you're human you're trained to a certain level and then no situation is the same and nobody knows unless the police officers in the situation and the people in the situation are interviewed and talked to and 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 you know the, the facts come out but the media is all about drama. The media is all about fear. The media is always about, you know, conquer and divide, separation, um, because that's what sells. They sensationalize things. And a lot of the time it is amazing what you know to be the facts and what is being portrayed. Um, but it is never just so simple. It's never... Yeah. Um, it's like you said, you know, there'll be one narrative. And also then because cases are confidential, the police cannot come forward and give all of the facts to sort of, um, what's the word, to sort of validate their actions because a lot of the information is confidential and can't be shared. Mm. So then, you know, anybody can say what they like because you can't speak, you can't say what the real facts are. So it's never, you are, you are human doing a job to the best of your ability, but in very high pressured situations, you have seconds, seconds to make a decision.
seconds, not minutes, seconds. It comes down to that. Yeah. That's a great answer. <laughs> Everyone, this is one you're gonna really wanna dive into and dive into the sources world. My goodness, was this a journey? We started <laughs> off talking about healing and really recognizing what is a healing journey and what is that? And talking about getting out of our own shit, you know, waking up and smelling what we're sitting in and getting from that place of being comfortably uncomfortable and being willing to walk down that scary unknown path and explore the things that you haven't explored before, being willing to try the stuff that you haven't tried before, but also navigating through maybe sometimes the best of intention, advice and help, but often sometimes the most hurtful and painful stuff. Hey, did you try this? Did you read this? Why don't you do this? From there, we really begin to explore what it looks like to be the, what the victim mentality is and the separation between that, recognizing the, the releasing of trauma that animals do and why humans somehow we, we, we struggle with it. Identifying that labels are not for humans, but they're for jars. I love that. I think I'm gonna actually title the episode that labels are for jars. That one really sticks with me. And, and the notion of, of becoming bored with your own story and being an observer of your own behavior. You know, we're, we're, we're such fascinating creatures and most of who we are and what we do is unconscious. We're not even aware it's going on. And it's sometimes we think that the, by, the results in our life are a byproduct of circumstances or things that we can't help. Where if we are willing to step outside of ourselves and observe, we'll see how every single day we uniquely contribute to our end results. At the end of the day, we may not even be realizing that we're doing it. We may not realize that the the way we approach our toothbrush in the morning with a heavy sigh and a hung head is what contributes to us ending the day feeling sad and depressed. And then if we made that one little subtle shift, while it may not change everything, it will begin to change something. And if we can change something, we can change more. I just, I feel like we barely began to scratch the surface of how deep we could go with source of the day, but I am so grateful for this time and I'm especially grateful that you leaned into the career change. I think you are right where you need to be at this time in your life and you are doing some incredible and very important work for the world and thank you for sharing a little of your magic with us here today. Thank you so much. Such a pleasure to be here. Thank you. Absolutely. We'll see you next time everyone on another edition of A Handful of Hope. Bye-bye. Thank you so much for listening. If you're finding value in these conversations, please rate and review on Apple, Google, Stitcher, or wherever your favorite place is to listen to